Thank you, thank you again. Um, happy to be here in the morning. I think my brain may be started, let's see. Um, I wasn't actually gonna talk about this, but since Mike kind of just gave that introduction about how I'm gonna give you some solutions, I'm just gonna tell you our friends that we spoke all day yesterday about the Christian nationalist movement likes to say the following thing, and I kind of want to put it in some context for you. They like to say the following thing about me. They say, well, James has been great. Sometimes they're not so kind, um, but they, when they're being kind or generous and they're doing their thing, as I'll explain in a moment, they like to say, James has been great. He's analyzed this. He's broken it down for us better than anybody, if they're being really kind to me, which is not really their, their style. But he has no solutions. He offers no solutions. And so it's time to set James aside and start working on solutions, so listen to us and stop listening to James. This is exactly the kind of rhetoric that you will find if you go look up what these people say about me, although now mostly they just insult me. Um, what are you going to do? So I'm going to give you some preliminary talking about solutions today. We'll see if we can change that narrative or throw a spanner in it at any rate. But I want to talk to you first, I've mentioned and you've heard many times that this is a Gnostic cult that we're working with in general when we talk about dialectical things. Okay, so I want to tell you, this wasn't part of my plan, so I'm just winging it here. Um, I want to talk about what I consider the Gnostic temptation. The Gnostic temptation. What tempts people to Gnosticism? The Gnostic doesn't come to you. If you're a Christian, there's been Gnostic heresies throughout all of history and Christianity. The Gnostic doesn't come to you and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know Christianity. You don't know Judaism. You don't know this. You don't know that. In general, by the way, Gnostics tend to be, especially when they're this hermetic thing, they tend to be um, mystics. The mystic doesn't come to you and say, you don't understand your thing. They say, you have an understanding of it that's low level. You have an understanding of it where there is more, but they don't want you to know it. Your pastors don't want you to know it. Your priest doesn't want you to know it. Your teacher doesn't want you to be able to surpass them. So they don't tell you the real secrets. But we have the real secrets. I recently was going through a document through one of these manipulative things that's very much associated with the left and all of this, and it was talking about a scale that they've come up with, a dignity index for, for institutions to how well they're aligned with what they call human dignity. And if you read through it, number you know level one is really bad, level two is still really bad, and you go up the scale, and you get to level five, and it's actually describing the principles of the United States of America, but then they have six, seven, and eight afterwards. See, you know pretty well, you're level five out of eight if you're really an American, but did you know there's three more levels? Come with us. That's the Gnostic temptation. There's more to the story than you know. They don't want you to know it. We want you to know it, so come with us. Break trust with the thing that you are involved in so that you can surpass or become equal to your teachers. Now, you will recognize that as exactly the story in the third chapter of Genesis. The serpent comes to Eve and says, by the way, the garden's nice and all, there's more to the story. Come with me. It's exactly the same temptation. That's what's warned about in the third chapter of Genesis, that Gnostic temptation. So when you see this response, James has no solutions, which maybe I've been thin on the ground for giving practical things people can do. I don't think that's the case. People all over the world, when I'm not online, tell me it's the other way around. But when you see somebody say, oh yeah, they've been useful so far, but there are things they don't want you to know, come with us. 
that's a good time to be suspicious because that's how you get somebody into a cult. That's exactly how you get somebody into a cult. There's higher level teachings than they want you to have. So today we're going to talk about how to stop a cultural revolution. I've been putting a lot of thought into this and not glib thought or flippant thought, but serious thought into how we might stop a cultural revolution. And so I said from the beginning, and I've said throughout this entire conference, I've said for a couple of years, several years actually, that you have to understand the thing you're fighting in order to create a diagnosis and a prescription to cure it. And so we have to understand that what we're fighting against, whether you like the words or not, whether you like the concepts or not, whether you like it or not, and overall, is dialectical political warfare. We are having political warfare waged against us using methods that come out of dialectical thought. Dialectical thought we've talked about is marrying truth and a lie to get a more true truth. You know, a truth that's beyond what they want you to know about the truth. It's Gnostic truth. And if we don't understand that this is how they think, if we don't understand this alien way of thinking, there's not any possibility of intervening and stopping it. In fact, we'll frequently play into their hands instead, and that's the problem that we face. We have a dialectical political warfare assault being waged on Western civilization that is not prepared to handle it, that doesn't know how to recognize it and doesn't know how to respond to it. So the past couple of years, we've been doing a better and better job of diagnosing and understanding this problem. So now I want to start talking about what we can do about it. And we understand that we talked about yesterday, I'll talk about more today, this idea of middle-level violence. The damned if you do, damned if you don't circumstance. And what we end up in with the action-reaction dynamic I spoke about yesterday is that we understand that if we don't act, they're going to get their way. If we don't try to stop them, they will not stop on their own. They're on the march. In fact, they know they've gone too far and that they only have victory or total defeat now. There is no just setting it aside. They've crossed the line. So they have one place to go, which is victory. They will not stop but have to be stopped. So we must act or we'll lose Western civilization and our way of life and freedom and opportunity for ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, and generations to come for as long as the regime lasts. And who knows what kind of a hellish fight to get out of it, if that's even possible, that our uh, descendants at some point would have to fight. On the other hand, we can't react. So we have to act, but we can't react. And the way that it appears when you're frustrated or when you're given you know, very simple options for what to do is that you either don't act or you react. So when you're being provoked, those are your only options. It's not act or react. They're provoking you already. You have to either react or just take it. And that is actually a false choice. So the first thing we have to understand in order to stop a cultural revolution is that we're constantly be putting, being put into a false choice there are other options. We do not have to choose between doing the reaction they want us to do in political warfare or accepting the terms they're throwing in front of us. There are other options, but they are made purposefully hard to discern. They are not put on the table and made obvious. It's like when you're raising kids and you know you want them to get vet eat vegetables and the kid doesn't want to eat vegetables, so you don't say, you know, pick a vegetable. You say, hey, which one do you want? Do you want broccoli or cauliflower? And they're like, they have a choice. Oh, I'll take broccoli. And you're like, ha kid, I got you eat a cruciferous vegetable that you hate. That's what they do. They put two things on the table that are both options that you 
you don't want. Now, vegetables are probably good for you as opposed to, I know we're going to get into the whole dietary thing if I do this on TV, but what? <laughs> somebody's going to write and say something about lectins, I know. <laughs> There's some kind of sulfur compound that does something horrible to your brain, I don't know. But we have to understand, the child, when you give them two options, that's how my mom tricked me every time, you have two options, here's what they are, and they're both things that she wanted me to do and not things that I would have wanted to do if I had autonomy as a toddler. Uh, well, we're not toddlers. It's time to set childish things away, as they say. And so um, we have to be able to start to discern the other options, not the two things that are proffered to us. Because we have to remember that not acting is losing, but reaction is their real action. And that was that spiral diagram I keep showing you. It can pop up at some point. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about a cultural revolution, knowing that reaction is actually something they want us to do. Reaction is part of the problem. It's choosing the other thing. If they can't get it by the direct means, they get it through our reaction, which they will exploit. We see that in their training manuals, in their activism manuals. This is something they know, not just that they need to do, but how to do it. They understand this and know that. Because reaction is always a necessary ingredient in dialectical political warfare. To move on the spiral, you have to have an action followed by a reaction. Then you can move vertically on the picture toward a solution. So we must act, but can't react. And that's the space we have to start thinking in if we want to stop a cultural revolution. We have to act, but cannot react. In other words, we have to be patient, we have to be discerning, we have to be smart. We have to choose our actions. This is what gets framed out by the people who want to steal defeat from victory as no solutions. James just wants us to sit down and do nothing. James just wants us to let this happen to our kids, which is, of course, if you've read or heard a single thing I've said over the past five years, exactly the opposite of everything I've ever said. As I told you before, Christian nationalism's first commandment is thou shalt must always bear false witness. So the first thing that we have to do though if we think we must act but cannot react is that you've got to get off the couch. There's no more sitting around. This is not blowing over. It will not stop on its own. It will not stop until it's stopped. But we have to do so with understanding. So if you don't have understanding, you start by getting off the couch and getting understanding. You start engaging materials that people have been now publishing for a few years. You start asking questions. You start going to, if there's a local group, maybe there's a chapter of whatever Republican club or whatever you know, organization that's fighting back. Moms for Liberty is one that's in many, many counties across the country. They are going to be tapped into resources. They're going to be tapped into things to do. They are taking action, and they're also going to be able to help you get up to speed. Two years ago, I was giving talks, and it was like, somebody needs to start organizations that will share information and get people up to speed. Those are starting to exist now, and in fact, they're starting to get influential and powerful now. So there are much more resources than there were two years ago when I was saying, basically, get a book, start reading. You have to do some homework, and some people did. Well, the next generation of that is people following in their footsteps, and the more people we have that understand, the more people that we have that are going to be able to act right and do well and stop this. Um, but to put it as bluntly and simply in the most important two, two letters in the English language, to quote Victor Davis Hanson, a very uh, intelligent thinker on these matters, somebody you can look up if you want to learn more about this and understand it, he said that none of this woke stuff stops, or the reaction in fact, 
until we all say no. No is a very magic word. No is a very powerful word. No is the word that can stop a cultural revolution. But we have to say no with enough of us or else we all get dragged along. There's that old joke, you know, um, history is, what, how's it go? History is, um, those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it, right? And then the, the rest of the joke is, but that uh, people who are aware of history are doomed to watch everybody else repeat it. So we have to get people in enough understanding so enough of us can say no. It doesn't take a lot. There are only a few percentage, a few percentage points of the colonists in the United States, the, the beginning of the United States that fought the revolution. It was only a few percent. It wasn't that many. Three, four, five, six percent of a population can make a gigantic difference if it's informed and activated. It can make a gigantic mistake if it's activated and not informed. So we have to get informed and we have to get activated and we've got to learn how to say no effectively, accurately, at the right times, in the right ways, and we have to have the courage to do so. We also have to remember that dialectical political warfare moves through conflict. The side-to-side -side motion is what moves you up the spiral. And we have to remember that stability prevents revolutions, as Mike talked about this morning. That is the key central principle. So you should always have your eyes on what are they trying to destabilize and how can I make sure they don't break it apart? Are they trying to destabilize the nation? Are they trying to destabilize the community, your kids? How can I bring stability back to that? But I have to give you, again, this call to discernment. You must be discerning because what reaction is selling, what Christian nationalism as a movement is selling, is a false appeal to stability. Oh, we'll give you stability. Liberalism has no stability. We have stability. We'll put a nice, stable order in under our Christian prince or whatever other tyrant, and that'll be stability. That's trading liberty for security, and that's not something we can do. It's not something we can lose sight of either. We can't seek stability in false security of a tyrant. So we have a fundamental question in front of us with the American Cultural Revolution is, as I've said a few times, can a cultural revolution be stopped once it has started? And that question, let me make no mistake for you, is existential for us. We are in a cultural revolution that has started. This is an existential, real, present question for us. Can it be stopped now that it's started? Either we figure this out or we lose virtually everything. Or as Mike has finished most of his talks for years, we must win. We must win. So how? If a cultural revolution can be stopped, how? So the goal that I have with my remarks today are that I want to start offering some clear principles of engagement that are informed on how to deal with dialectical political warfare so that we can do that. I believe, firmly believe, that if we follow these well enough and we get enough people aware of them and get them to follow them as well, that we can win. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm not telling you this is a standard you must you know, pick up and carry unless you want to carry the American flag. I'll let you stand behind that one. I'm saying that we have to understand a process and engage in it in our own ways and in our own places. I have no tyranny to sell you. I have no program. I have no financial, like, 
honeypot, like, hey guys, I'll sign up for my parallel economy that I happen to have the financial infrastructure for and take 4% of every one of your transactions. It's like, welcome to my new Christian nationalist credit card. By the way, that was the uh, point of the article Andrew Isker sent in the email this morning uh, from Gab that we spoke about earlier, where it said that the, there's the meaningless of modern life. The punchline was, we have to build a parallel Christian economy. Guess what we're building? All this kind of digital financial stuff. You can come donate to Gab. Uh-huh, okay. Seen that before. But I also believe that America is different and special. We are based on the concept, the cause of liberty. You hear about the spirit of 76. What was the spirit of 76? It was the cause of liberty. We are already a nation constituted on the idea of liberty. We are a nation that, though we've got sleepy about it, grew up on having and believing in the idea of liberty. It's not just within living memory, it's almost all of us understand this. I talk to young people, you say, well, not the kids in the schools. They don't believe in liberty. I hear from 20-year-olds getting on stage in front of hundreds or sometimes thousands of people and saying, you are stealing our liberty from our generation and you can't have it. They know too. Even the young people know. So this is a different kind of place. We don't have some unity on a contrived basis. We have unity under the very broad concept that individuals have rights and are guaranteed the ability to make opportunity with those rights. The idea of America is that we can all get along no matter where we come from if we're allowed to pursue our opportunities without much hindrance. And it works. It's the idea of e pluribus unum. China's situation with their cultural revolution, the one other example we have, was very different. They had just had the devastation of the Great Leap Forward, so they're psychologically and socially and economically in a much worse place than we were. They've had 15 or 16 years at that point of a military revolution-installed communist state. Their kids are already completely brainwashed. We're in a much better situation, but we have this great reset and degrowth hitting us, a Great Leap backwards that can break and devastate us as well if we allow it to proceed. Agenda 2030 with its sustainable development goals where we're supposed to own nothing and be happy, become content with less. Degrowth, it's funny, we talk about, you heard degrowth this morning from Mike, they talk about it out of both sides of their mouth. They say it's about shrinking economies, that's in the World Economic Forum definition, but you read further down in the same piece and they say it's not about shrinking GDP. Excuse me? And then you read other articles that say it could actually grow GDP. Then you read other articles that say it will definitely have to shrink GDP, but we'll get along better because we'll have other measures that are better than GDP, like well-being and something about environmental sustainability. They're all over the map, which means what they have is a goal in search of an argument. They don't know why people will believe that they should go for this, and they're looking for that, so they're throwing the spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. They just know what they want, which is the power that comes with having this model. So we need to stop the cultural revolution before we end up in economic devastation that makes, it even, makes us even more susceptible to it. So we have to stand up to these things now, these digital currencies, social credit systems, the economic abuses, our ties to these organizations like the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the United Nations that threaten our sovereignty. 
You probably don't know that a lot of the stuff that's happening in our schools is happening because it was formulated at UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, 20 years ago, and it's actually coming down a pipeline into our kids' heads. It's not like somebody sitting there came up with a great idea necessarily at Columbia University's Teachers College or whatever, and now we're all stuck with it. This is coming down to the whole comprehensive sexuality education program, for example, that's doing all of the real, really weird and, and, and obscene sexuality education with our children, including pleasure-based sex education, is all coming down from United Nations initiatives begun 20 years ago this year. We have to start cutting off. Donald Trump took us out of UNESCO. Joe Biden put us back in UNESCO. These are the kinds of things we've got to be more aware of and demanding from our politicians we're going to stop those aspects of these things. But on the ground, we have a cultural revolution, and we have to stop it. The big picture is actually pretty simple. Their goal is a new unity on a new basis. We already rejected that once. I told you the other night about how Joe Biden got installed as president, and he came out and he said, we're going to have unity in this country now. And the conservatives said, yeah, right. On whose standard? By whose measurement? On what terms? Yours? I don't think so. According to whatever the Democrats want and how that changes tomorrow? No, no, no. We're not unifying under this corrupt power. We already rejected it once. We have to continually reject the idea of a new unity on a new basis and the premises of the new basis itself. We have a basis. The American flag is standing right there. We have a basis. The Constitution is there for everybody to read. We have a basis. The Declaration of Independence, which broke us away from King George, can break us away from King Charles. We have to understand and reject the methods they use, like struggle sessions and deception. We have to learn to see those things and break their power. We have to stand with our fellow citizens and not get sucked into the struggle session dynamic ourselves. Until you understand it, that's virtually impossible. We have to learn, in fact, to say no. The first and most important rule for stopping a cultural revolution is not saying no or having the courage to say no, though. The first and most important rule is much simpler. It is do not quit. Everything in a cultural revolution is engineered to make people stay on the couch or if they got up, to sit back down. This is a key difference between leftists and the rest of us. And I see this with conservatives, unfortunately, all the time. When leftists lose, they don't quit, they get mad. And they come back again. If they file a lawsuit and they lose the lawsuit and don't get whatever they want, they sue again. They find a new pretext and they do it again. And they'll sue 17, 18, 19, 20 times if they have to. When they lose, they organize. When we lose, we go home. Oh, well, they said, well, this was not going to work. That's why they win. They're persistent. They get mad and come back even harder when they don't get their way. You know why? Because they have an entitlement complex to getting 120% of their way all the time. You know that thing that they always talk about, hate, hate speech, rising hate, anti-LGBTQ hate? Do you know what the definition of hate is if we really dig down to it when a leftist says it? It means getting less than 120% of their way about anything. That's hate. They said, give us this. You didn't give them that plus 20%. And they said, hate, hate is happening. That's what they really mean by it. You're not giving us all of our way. 
And they use that hate and turn it into anger and turn it into action through organization over and over and over and over again. They don't quit, but they want you to quit. So the first and most important principle is you must not quit. I talk to people every day. I talked to somebody this morning. How do you keep going? They want you to quit. I'll tell you how I keep going. I wake up some days. I'm like, I don't really want to do this anymore. Some days I'm in the shower having a moment. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And then I'm like, no, they want me to quit. I'm not giving it to them. Don't let the bastards grind you down. There's a way to say that in Latin. I was going to do it, but I don't remember how it goes. It sounds like carbonara or something like some Italian pasta or something. You can look it up. They might win or lose at the point that we are now in in this cultural revolution. I don't know. They could win, but they could lose. But I know this, is that if we quit or too many of us give up, they win for sure. So one of the key concepts you have to understand in dialectical political warfare is that it's designed to demoralize the opponent. That's you. You're the opponent here. It is designed to demoralize the target. It's to make them want to give up. Demoralize comes from the word morale, which is your fighting spirit. They want to destroy your morale. They want you to think it's not worth it. It's too late. The floor joists are already rotted. They want you to think it's impossible. It's too hard. I can't understand it. They've already done so much. Oh my gosh, every day it's a new thing. They hit me with something else on social media. I tried to speak up and they did this terrible thing to me. They called me these names. They hurt me this way. They stalked my house, which they do. They want you to give up. They want to destroy your morale. They use narratives like the changes that are coming are inevitable. It'll go much better for you if you come with us. It'll be very bad for you if you don't. They use narratives like it's already too late. You'll hear that not from the left, by the way. You'll hear it from the right. It's already too late. I don't know which team they're playing for. You'll hear they're too powerful. They've taken too many of our institutions. There's nothing we can do. They own all the institutions. They own all the institutions. They did this long march through the institutions. Funnily enough, they complete the long march at exactly the moment in history when institutions became less important. The day-to-day -day slog sucks too much. It's too hard, it's too tiring. I wake up, I suffer this myself. In the shower, having a moment. I can't do this anymore. No, yes you can. No, you most definitely can. All you have to do is put your shoulder to the wheel and keep going. But demoralization does more than destroys your morale. It drags you into dialectical space, if we use a formal term. It destroys your ability to tell true from false because it marries truth to a lie. So if you marry enough truths to enough lies, you can't tell what's true and false anymore. It destroys your ability to tell moral truths as well. So you can't tell good from evil or right from wrong. You can't even tell real from fake. Was that an image? Was that photoshopped? Is that real? Did they really say that? Is it taken out of context? You can't even tell real news from fake news. Donald Trump gave us one gift among many that is the most valuable gift he's given to this nation, in my opinion, which was to call the media fake news. It allowed us to begin to see it. And look what they did when he did that. 
that's a violation of the First Amendment. Like they care about the First Amendment all of a sudden. <laughs> Give me a break. Oh, the First Amendment's really important when it works for them and it's got to go when it doesn't. Give me a break. You know what that is? You think, oh, that's hypocrisy. No, it's not. It's hierarchy. They think they're better than you. They think they're entitled to be able to treat you that way. So he's an assaulting the First Amendment. He's a, he's, he's a tyrant. He's a dictator. He's obviously a dictator. How many people for the, since the year 2015 when Donald Trump decided to announce to run for president, coming down that escalator, how many people have you heard say, well, I don't know if he's a dictator or I think he might be a dictator or he has dictatorial tendencies or he says things like a dictator? Can't tell real from fake. Can't tell good from evil. Can't tell right from wrong. Can't tell true from false at the bottom. That's what demoralization also does. It ruins your ability to perceive the world around you without appealing to an expert. And this is formally what we should call dialectical space, which is a lot of syllables, so we won't call it that. A fancy name given or fun name given to it by a philosopher called Eric Fogelein is the wizard's circle. Think of these people as wizards and they've cast a spell, like a bubble around you, and you're in the circle. And everything in the world that you see is through this lens of this wizard circle and it's distorted. It's like looking out to the world through a funhouse mirror or through a weird lens and everything's shaped the way the left wants you to see it. Everything's a truth married to a lie. And he says when you're in the wizard circle, that's paraphrasing a direct quote, Fogelein says when you're in the wizard circle you are lost. You cannot fight against a dialectical political warfare operation when you are in its wizard circle. When you have accepted or believe or are confused about the propaganda, you cannot actually fight back your lost. Instead of maybe calling it dialectical space, we could call it propaganda space, if that's easier for you to get your head around and understand. It's the space of understanding created by being propagandized. It's to lead you to mix truth and falsity so that you get things wrong and you aren't sure and eventually you say, I don't even know, it's too complicated. The word that Karl Marx used for this and then projected onto his enemies as opposed to realizing it's exactly what his program is doing is mystification. It is a mystified understanding of reality around you. So the iron law of woke projection, if you follow me, you'll know I talk about that a lot, never misses. Marx said capitalism and bourgeois ideology mystifies the population. No, he mystifies people into not understanding the world. He cast the wizard circle. He dragged people into dialectical space. And you can know that because his program was literally called dialectical materialism. A understanding of the material world and its phenomena through the dialectic. So in dialectical space, the reason you can't tell these things is because distinctions have been blurred. Contexts have been mixed up or removed so that different things look the same. And you know something's wrong, but you can't put your finger on it. And I know you felt that way a thousand times, probably 10,000 times in the last few years. I know something's wrong, but I can't say what it is. That's when you know you've been mystified. And it happened because the distinctions are blurred. Charlie Kirk and I have become friends, and one of the things that he taught me, actually I went on his show, and if you ever go on Charlie Kirk's show, I think he changed it because I said this publicly one time and we had a good laugh about it. But he said that the Bible is a book of distinctions. And I say that's because reality is a reality of distinctions. Different things in reality are different. The Bible draws a line between God and man, good and evil, man and woman, right and wrong, true and false. It draws very clear distinctions. The Bible can be read as a book of learning how to tell distinctions. 
so that we can apprehend reality and truth correctly. What dialectical political warfare does is removes the distinctions. It says that distinctions are illusions that take us away from the great unity of understanding where the distinctions no longer tell us what's really going on. It's, you know, you know it pretty well. You know it to the level of distinctions, but there's a further level. Come with us where the distinctions are fake. And you don't know anything, so you have to ask the guru exactly what true and false are, right and wrong are. Is this right today? Is this wrong? What are we doing? Yeah, I'm going to need your wife later. Typical cult behavior. Dialectical space is truth married to lies. It is a synthetic space that mixes lies and truths together so that true and false, this is very important. When you're dealing with these people, when we're looking at the horizontal movement on the spiral, true and false always matter except in dialectical space. In dialectical space, this is a false reality. True and false don't matter. They pull you into a fake reality where true and false don't matter anymore. All that matters, not true and false, not right and wrong, not good and evil, not real and fake, all that matters is what you are supposed to say to go along with everybody and fit in and not get struggled. True and false do not matter in dialectical space. So you say, well, I'll just present the evidence and they'll change their mind. No, they won't because they're already suppressing the evidence. They're already suppressing the truth. And religious circles is a word for that. They are wicked. They know the truth. You are not going to convince me that there are more than 10 people who are of adult age and approximately sound mind who believe that men can become women or vice versa. They know it's fake. You can tell they know it's fake because they're so vicious at forcing people to participate in it. In that space, true and false don't matter. They're already suppressing the truth. They are wicked. This is wickedness. And it's a very important, very religiously charged word that we should think about more and understand. This is an intrinsically Gnostic space. Those Gnostic heresies never went away. They changed shape for the times, which they can do. They don't have any real rules. It's fake. The Gnostic or the wizard, the guru, the expert, I guess if it's the Supreme Court justice, it's the biologist, knows the right answer, but you can't. No one else can. You always have to ask somebody in the cult how to understand reality. You can't find it out for yourself. So the party, like the Communist Party of China, for example, is a Gnostic apparatus. It tells you what the right and wrong answers are. It tells you what true and false are. If it says black is white and white is black, they are. This is the point of what is a woman. This is the point when Marshall Blackburn asked Kentonji Brown Jackson, what is a woman? And she fumbled around. She, let me emphasize that, she fumbled around on what is a woman. And she said, well, I don't know, I'd have to ask a biologist. What she said is, I have to defer to a qualified expert, which is the word that we use for a Gnostic in the current scientific technocracy. I have to ask a guru. I've got to find a wizard who can tell me how to make some men count as women and all women maybe unless they want to count as men and whatever, eh, whatever whoever, however you feel that day. 
I have to ask the Gnostic that can tell. Because if I stand on the stage and say for the next one minute and 30 seconds, I am a woman speaking out against this, they're going to say, no, 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 James is fake. That's not real. They know. They get to determine if my claim on being a woman is real or fake. Because if it advances their agenda, it's real. And if it hurts their agenda, it's fake. When my friend Zuby, identified as a woman, picked up a deadlift, broke the world record of deadlifting for women, he didn't count if Donald Trump had come out and said, I am the first transgender woman president that wouldn't have counted. His self-identification doesn't count. It only counts when the Gnostic says it counts, and it only counts for the Gnostics when it advances their agenda. True and false don't matter in dialectical space. That's not what it's about. And dialectical political warfare is designed to pull you into dialectical space until you either submit or quit. You submit and accept the terms. Remember with Mao, the point was to bully you, harass you, struggle you, criticize you, abuse you, until you could recognize your crimes from the people's standpoint. That's submission. Or maybe instead, like we heard in the real life stories, you kill yourself and go floating in the town well. That's quitting. That's what political warfare, dialectical political warfare is about. Accept our false terms or get out of the game. These are types of annulment or nullification, which is where you've been rendered irrelevant or in fact counterproductive because in synthetic space, men aren't men, men are toxic. People can't be not racist, that's actually racist. They're showing white fragility. I saw something about male fragility somebody sent me uh, earlier this week, and I thought, wow, it took them a long time to write that one down. I was talking about that in 2018 when I was writing the fake academic papers. People were like, oh, no, it's white fragility. It took them a long time to figure out that it could be other people. Nullification, though, is a social phenomenon. It's not a real phenomenon. Dialectical space is a social creation. It's a spell cast on other people to create a fake consensus that makes them think that the fake reality is the real reality and people outside of it are weird or bad or conspiracy theorists or racists or transphobes or something. So what do we have to do about that? You have to drag people back to reality. You have to stand your ground. You have to be confident. You have to be discerning enough to know reality so that you can drag people back to it. No, that's not the case. And you try to show people the cracks in the distortion field, the wizard circle. Say, look, no. That's not the case. Here's what's happening. They're explaining this. You have to show their side. And then you say, this is what's really going on. And you have to show your side. You're going to have to bring a lot of receipts. It's 100 times much, as much work to undo one of their lies as it is for them to tell that lie. And they know it. And that's their huge advantage. But you have to remoralize. And you have to remoralize by grounding yourself in the truth. What do you truly have to fear if you're grounded in the truth? You have to get your morale back. You have to get your sight of true and false and right and wrong back. You got to get your head out of the clouds that they're spinning you up into. You know, when Mark said that, that, that religion is the opiate of the masses, right? I don't know if Marxism is more like the opiate of the working class or the activists or whatever, if it's more like methamphetamine, but they're definitely spun on something and they want you spun too so that you can't, per, can't perceive the, the reality around you. The term for dragging you into dialectical space in German is Aufheben. Those of you who have heard my other talks know what I'm talking about. It's this weird word in German that actually, literally, Aufheben means 
to put upon, to lift up, to raise above. But it also has the idea of annulment, of destruction or cancellation, and at the same time, keeping or preserving. It's a wonderfully dialectical word. Its meaning contains its own opposites with its own solution. To keep, but to annul, and at the same time to raise to a higher level of understanding. In other words, to blur out the distinctions and confuse yourself. Now, there are other uses of the word Alphaben in German. I'm not going to say that, but in the Hegelian sense, the Hegel used, that Marx adopted, that's what it means. The Her uh, Marcuse and so on, the neo-Marxists in, in America in the 1960s, used this term explicitly, frequently. They knew what they were doing. The goal of that is to put you under the spell or take you out of the game. The main tool that they will use if you start to resist is the struggle session. That's to force you to confess, like I was just talking about, to accept their terms. But the thing is, and this is what Lily said in her talk two days ago, you're not canceled until you accept cancellation. You are not nullified until you accept that you're nullified. In other words, you haven't quit till you quit. If you don't accept their terms, if you don't apologize, you don't make a tacit confession, you're still in the game. You might have a harder road, but you haven't lost. They actually cannot take your soul from you. You have to give it away, bit by bit, to get along and agree. I tell young people frequently, especially at turning point events, every time you tell a lie to fit in, you've sold a piece of your soul. Every time you confess to wrongdoing you didn't do on contrived terms, you've sold a piece of your soul. And eventually they get all of it. So don't demoralize yourself. They're trying to demoralize you. They want you demoralized. They want you to quit and be confused and blurred out and spun. But you will demoralize yourself. So you'll get engaged in this fight, and it's hard. And you're going to say, well, you know what? I'm going to march down there, and I'm going to tell them, and something's going to change. And no, it doesn't. Don't expect everything bad to happen to stop just because you expose something. You think one video of a drag queen grinding or something in front of a kid and that's going to call an end to that. No, it's not. They're provoking you. They're driving this for an agenda. They're not going to quit until they're actually made to quit, which is going to take convincing people who are also mystified, who have the authority to do something like judges, police, judges in particular, district attorneys, people who elect district attorneys, and so on, to start making more judicious decisions. And judges are busy. I just talked with a judge. They're busy. They're kind of clueless on these problems because they've got a real job. They've been busy. They're going to be some of the last people to figure this out. And they're going to figure it out by us keep talking about it. So don't expect everything's just going to stop because you spoke up. I've found in my experience that if I take an issue like ESG and start talking about it, it will be part of the conversation in 15 months. So if you get mad in one and quit, you demoralized yourself. Keep at it. What would the leftists do? When they lose, they get mad and do it more and organize. There's nothing wrong with that part of their program. That's not the devilish part. They don't give up and they get organized. They will fight like hell and they will fight dirty to keep power in position. So you march down there and you say, we're going to get this person out of office. And they kick them out of office like uh, Beetlejuice up there in Chicago. And what do they do? They turn around and put somebody even worse. That's demoralizing. They did that to demoralize you guys. 
You eject one from office and they put somebody even worse in place. Get used to it. It's part of the game. It's still part of winning. You're forcing them to force their hand even more and more into the public eye. When they put somebody worse in place, it's even more obvious. The person they had in place before was the soft option. Somebody like Kamala Harris, who goes up there and pretends she's a ditz. She was a prosecutor in California. She's not a ditz. She's pretending to be a stupid cheerleader so you can't hear the communism that comes out of her mouth every time she says something about do it together. When we do it together, we'll be together on the moon. We'll do it. Did you know that there's the together on the moon? It, space, what is it? It's space. It's everywhere. It's space. She's pretending to be stupid. And when they replace her, the person they put in is going to go harder. They're not going to be as subtle. And more people are going to be able to see it. It's still a victory. You're going to perceive it as a loss, but it's a victory. Learning to perceive unconventional winning is crucial to keeping your morale up. We're going to have a lot of unconventional winning. Us not going along with that unity program from the Biden thing was a huge win. And none of us even noticed it. We don't know how to celebrate our wins because we don't know what they look like. You have to keep hammering the message in the direction of the people who have power and authority. You have to keep hammering the message into people who could take those positions of power and authority where those are occupied by people who are currently corrupt. And it is a slog, so expect it to be a slog. If you think you're going to show up, I'm, gonna, I'm mad as hell, I'm showing up, I'm saying something today. And you think it's going to change tomorrow, you are in the wrong game. Get your head straight. That's not how this works. It's going to take a while. You have to keep doing it. You hear a new concept you got to hear it 30, 40, 50 times. James, really smart. Oh my gosh, he's over our heads. I have to read these stupid communist books like six times before I even start to understand them. It's not easy for anybody. You have to keep doing it. We cannot expect people, but especially leftists or agenda-driven people or corrupt people who have a check behind them to start doing the right thing just because they've been exposed, but we have to keep exposing them. I had a friend who told me a while back, just a general piece of advice. He didn't tell me I was doing anything wrong, which is good because I didn't take it personally. And he said, don't always appeal to somebody's better nature. They might not have one. Well, leftists tend not to have a better nature. They think they're better than you. They're entitled to their bad nature. So they don't stop, but they have to be made to stop. We must do that legally. We must do that argumentatively. We must do that by making the case. We must do that by moving back into the positions of power we've handed over to them or left to them over time and wielding that as servants, not as leaders. We also must shun violence. Violence is reaction and plays into their hands. It's also just wrong. One of the founding principles of Western civilization is that no one, in that they are not God, has the authority to do violence first. So whoever does violence first delegitimizes themselves and falls outside of the program that we're trying to preserve. This turns out to cut both ways. We shall not be violent because we discredit ourselves, but if we can make them force it, they look bad. It's really actually a very good and important principle. So if you're not quitting, don't quit being the most important principle. What do you do while you aren't quitting? There are actually not that many things big picture that you have to do. Number one, We've already talked about it. Stability repels revolution, so you cultivate and protect stability. 
The neo-Marxists acknowledged, the reason I learned stability repels revolutions is because in the 60s they kept talking about, well, the working class became stable and they're not going to be our revolutionary base. Stable bases don't revolt. So they need instability. And I started reading their documents and I realized that what Marcuse was after in his document from 1969 called An Essay on Liberation, where the first chapter of this long essay is a biological foundation for socialism, and the second chapter is a new sensibility, is that they're making people psychologically unstable to demand a new world that they feel like they can't operate in the world that we have. So maybe you miseducate them and radicalize them in school instead of actually educating them to participate and succeed in life. And then what? Where are they? Demanding a new world because they're now adults who aren't equipped to participate in the world and have been taught to hate it. Isn't that what's happened? Maybe you medicalize a whole bunch of kids. Maybe it's with, uh, you know, what am I looking for here? I was going to say benzodiazepines, but no, that's not right. Antidepressants. Maybe it's SSRIs, maybe it's amphetamines like Ritalin or Adderall or whatever else. Maybe it's this transition thing. You medicalize an entire generation and wow, aren't your medical bills super expensive? Well, there's a kind of a shortage of these drugs. They're getting really expensive. Wouldn't it be nice if the government paid for this drug you're now addicted to or now need to be able to function? That's particularly poignant in trans kids who are medical patients for life. One use of trans kids, if you're an evil dictator from the left, would be that they are going to demand socialist health care to pay for their extremely expensive health care for the rest of their life that they broke themselves with. They understand that stable people don't revolt, so they also understand that destabilization leads to revolutions. So you want to cultivate and protect stability. I refer to this as tending your garden. Tend the garden around your life, tend your community, tend your children, and then on that vein, the most important thing is to protect your kids. Their revolution fails if they don't get our kids. They might do some terrible things to us, but they lose in the end if they don't get our kids. However, if they do get our kids, it doesn't matter what happens with us. That's exactly what Hitler said. What are you? You'll pass away. I have your children. They need your kids. Protect your kids. I have to drop a hard truth. This is a controversial truth. I am all about fixing our schools, both public and private. Fixing our accreditation pipelines. Fixing our um, licensure pipelines, fixing the curriculum and the textbooks, fixing all of that. I'm all for this. I want to see healthy public and private schools again. Not every conservative agrees with me on that. But I will tell you that we will not fix them before kids that are in them graduate. The only protection for your children, if they are children now, if you don't have a system to deprogram them at home or protect them in some other way, is homeschool. The only one, and they will come for that too. So that has to be fought and defended whether you homeschool or not. That's your fight. It's also your refuge. If, they, if you can't homeschool, I understand. It's resource intensive. It's difficult. There's a lot of issues. I get that. You've got to get involved in your kids' lives in a profound way. You've got to get involved in their friends' lives in a profound way. They say that the healing of America will take place at family dinner. You might want to start having family dinner every day again. You might want to start having once a week or once every two weeks what a lady in Atlanta I met has Nana dinner where grandma comes over and they have a big formal dinner for all the kids and their friends. The teenagers come over and they talk to grandma, no devices, and they talk to grandma for two hours about life as it used to be, life as it is, principles and all kinds of good living. 
and they're connecting across generations, which is exactly the thing that they have to sever. These are things that you have to do. We must protect our kids. You have to start thinking of ways. I don't know how to do all this complicated stuff James is talking about. Bill Roach was way over my head. I don't know what to do. I don't even know what Mike was talking about, and it's so big and scary. Well, your kids are right there in front of your face. Or they should be. And if they're not, you might want to get them there. And you start getting involved in their lives and making sure that they grow up with good values and they make sure they grow up understanding what's happening in the world around them in age-appropriate ways. You've got to protect your kids. We have to reject identity politics. Remember, identity politics is unity on a contrived basis. In other words, it's dialectical fake unity. Think about what intersectionality is. You think, wow, it looks an awful lot like people fighting over who gets to be on top of the pile. It doesn't look like unity at all, so they call it solidarity. But this is their fake contrived unity that's actually full of conflict. So we have to reject identity politics. Racist versus anti-racist, sustainable versus unsustainable, vaxxed versus unvaxxed. These are all identity politics maneuvers in different domains. From left, from whatever this environmental thing is, I guess left, and then this vaccine thing that we just went through. By the way, it's another big victory. We don't have vaccine passports. That's forced them to completely retool and figure out an expensive plan B to try to force us into their tracking systems. It only took a few relatively small percentage of citizens in free countries to say, well, I'm not doing that. And it overcomplicated their system, and we don't have it. We have to reject identity politics. That would include you're either with Christian nationalism or against us. You have to reject this idea of the balkanized, different denominational big sort, the political big sort. We have to reject identity politics and get talking to each other again. Although when we talk with people that are sucked into cults, cult deprogramming is sort of frustrating, you probably noticed. All unity in a free country must be on a voluntary basis. When they compare to a soccer team, everybody on that soccer team is on that soccer team because they want to be on that soccer team. And if they don't want to be on that soccer team next year, they go home and don't be on that soccer team. You do not have that privilege in a communist state. You will not have that privilege under Christian nationalism or any other reactionary, fascist, totalitarian system. You don't have the ability to voluntarily assent or leave. Christianity is a religion based on voluntary acceptance. That's why it's fundamentally different. So we expose and reject the contrived new basis, and we expose and reject the bogus call to unity on that new basis. We have to constantly expose. Exposing is the most powerful weapon we have next to lawsuits. And they don't work until we do the exposing. We have to expose manipulators, manipulations, and narrative warfare every time. We have to expose it not shallowly and say, hey, they're doing that. We have to expose it deeply. Here's how it works, which you have to understand. We have to exit dialectical space, if you will, for ourselves, and we have to help other people out. We've got to get out of the wizard circle and break the spell for others. And that happens through expose, 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 expose. We always have to reduce the trust in the wizards, the experts, they. Oh, the United Nations is saying it's important, blah, blah, blah. No, bad. Think for yourself. We have to break the spell. Somebody came up to me and said, James, 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 after a talk. 
This is all well and good, but there's enough of this education. We need action items. It's time to move on from education. And I said to him, if you went to your neighbor's house and knocked on the door, I don't know where you live, maybe you're in a cool neighborhood, and you said to your neighbor, we've got to abolish the United Nations, would they look at you like you're insane? And he said, yeah, probably. I was like, we're not done educating. The people in that room, a couple hundred people, are the people in that community who knew that that stuff's important. Most of us don't know it yet. We have to keep exposing and educating. It is impossible to do any of this other stuff until we expose how they do what they're doing and get people out of the spell. And that's going to be impossible until you understand how they cast their spells and how they do their tactics. Now, a lot more practical, two very practical things, the very bottom, bottom, bottom level besides protect your kids of what you need to do, or what we need to do, is we need to work to defenestrate. We have to throw them out of power that they're abusing. See, they wove this spell called cancel culture. Are you against cancel culture? Yes, right? Of course. Yeah, of course. We're all against cancel culture. So then when you say, you're abusing your power, you need to resign, they'll say, you're against cancel culture. Try to hold you to a principle they contrived you into. You are not ever against taking responsibility to remove an abusive person from power. That was never a value you signed up to. You were against arbitrary and contrived removals from livelihood or power or whatever else through cancel culture and struggle sessions, which are completely different. But they blur the context, so different things look the same. And then they hold you to a standard they contrived for you. So guess what? You can tell that that is a very effective technique because you'll first of all find it's very hard to do They'll fight it really hard if you try to remove one from like a school board, not even a super large amount of power. They will fight like crazy. They will do dirty tricks. They will stalk your house. There's all these places like in Virginia, they call them Champagne or Chardonnay Antifa. These middle-aged moms going around causing like all kinds of havoc in their communities because they are so afraid. You see in San Francisco, you remove somebody from a school board, you remove somebody from a position of power, they squeal like stuck pigs which I call the iron law of woke overreaction. They tell you when you hit a target because they scream about it. And it is going to be hard to remove them from power so you know it's what we have to do. Anybody who's abusing a position of power has to be removed from the position of power, on contrived terms particularly. You can tell that this is a thing also because I said before about the iron law of woke projection. They always project. It never misses either is when you, try, when you find these arguments, what are the reasons that they say, well, you've got to not be the president of that university anymore because he's a racist, and racists always abuse their power. So they're using the argument that there's an implicit abuse of power that means that we've got to get them out and get compliant people in. So you know that that is actually the mechanism that they're going to come back to you with later. So you have to think about that in, in advance and start making campaigns to remove people who are abusing their power from their power. This is practical stuff. We have to, what I call, level the liability field. That's lawsuits. It's other things too, like firing people who abuse their power. It has to be a liability for people to be woke. Bud Light has learned that it's a liability to go woke, but they are tricky. I was at the airport the other day, and I was at the bar because that's where the hamburger was, and there were five taps at the bar in the airport, and one was Bud Light, and the guy comes up, and the lady says, do you want a beer? And he was like, yeah, and he made a joke. He's like, not Bud Light because I'm not drinking that. Made his point known, and he's like, give me the Stella Artois, which was right next to it. Turns out four of the five taps at that bar were all owned by InBev. They're all owned by the same company, the parent company that owns Budweiser now. 
And I sat there and kind of just ate my hamburger and watched. Because I didn't know really what else to do. Lawsuits are going to be the primary way that we reorient the liability field. Boycotts are useful. We always have to take the next step. Congressional hearings, people say, what do those even do? They get it on the record, what's going on. Lying before Congress is a big-time felony. They may not enforce it, but you still have to force it to happen over and over and over again. We have to start thinking of ourselves uncomfortably as potential plaintiffs. Did they defame you? Did they violate your rights, your First Amendment rights in particular? Your children's are probably being violated on the daily at school or maybe at work. Well, until the liability field is shifted so that people sue, they won't change. We know this is true, for example, because they just pulled the affirmative action change at the Supreme Court, and now a tidal wave of lawsuits is coming, and they're all freaking out and trying to figure out the new DEI policies as fast as they can, because the way the liability field worked before was we need the DEI policies to avoid these ultimately frivolous civil rights lawsuits, and now that all shifted. Continuing to shift those things is going to be necessary. So we need to file lawsuits, but not indiscriminately. We need to do so intelligently with strategic purposes for key purposes and good law. You don't have to be an expert to do this. Good law firms will help you do this. So start researching. What are some good law firms? Here in the Southeast, there's one called Southeast Legal Foundation. That's an example of one. There's the Alliance Defending Freedom. They tend to do good work. There are several of these. The Pacific, what is it, Pacific Legal something. That's a good one. There are several of these. They can do strategic lawsuits, so they end up at the Supreme Court and knocking down, as we've been talking about here, uh, the decisions for diversity and affirmative action in college admissions. Well, that can extend to diversity and affirmative action in uh, the workplace when it takes down a, or reconsiders a case called Griggs versus Duke Power from 1971. That's why that's all there. There's a Supreme Court case. We got Roe versus Wade overturned. Why can't we get that one overturned? We just saw the Grutter versus Bollinger overturned. We can see this overturned too. We want these strategic lawsuits that start moving the ball back to leveling the liability field. So civil rights law is not interpreted on a bias like we've had now for five decades, it's advantaged them. These are possible things with smart lawfare, but people have to think there's no lawsuit without a plaintiff. Somebody has to have been harmed and has to be willing to go to the plate. They have to be willing to say, you violated my rights and I'm going to sue you. Some of that is going to be challenging or expensive. Some of that there are lawsuit, law, uh, law firms that are, um, do a lot of things pro bono to try to help people. These are things that we've got to start thinking about. They're uncomfortable. But those are very, very practical dimensions. Lawsuits and firing people who are abusing their power. Basically, leftists and other tyrants should be removed from power because that's actually the most American thing in the world is to take tyrants out of power that they're abusing. On top of that, we have to understand, and this is the key of the dialectical political warfare part, is that leftists and other political warfare tacticians think operationally, and I've said this like 10 times so far in the conference, the left thinks operationally, so you have to think operationally too if you want to win. You have to think operationally in terms of understanding their operations and formulating your own, but you also have to think counter-operationally. How do we intercept their operations and turn them against them? The left already thinks this way. This is why they've been beating us. So get it in your head that they're operational. I know you think they're random and crazy and stupid and whatever else and these insane and then destructive, they are. Often the destruction is the point, as a matter of fact. Why would they just destroy that thing? Because 
It's either under their control, which is great, or it's destroyed, which is good from their perspective. The backup plan to I can't control this for a leftist is it's broken and nobody can have it. So they have nothing to preserve. This is a revolution, comrade. So you have to start asking yourself, try to understand, what is the point? If, if this thing that's in front of me isn't real totally, it's contrived, and it has a purpose, an operational purpose, what would the point of the operation be? Is this thing a psyops? Is it an active measure, more accurately? And if it is, maybe it's not. Maybe it's really something going on. But if it's not, what would its point be? And if you can start to see the point, you might start to see the move. And you start to see the move, you might understand the play. And if you understand the play, then you can put the defense in the spot to stop it. To do that, you're going to have to understand that most of their provocations are middle-level violence provocations. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. The decision dilemma. So you have to act, but not react. It actually turns out that if you can keep your cool and act, as opposed to reacting like they want you to, it makes them very vulnerable. They are actually at risk by doing this, and they recognize it. I didn't make that up. I'm not assessing. They wrote it down as a warning on the book that says, go put people in decision dilemmas. If you can change the narrative where their framing doesn't control how people understand what happened, they look like jerks. Think about it this way. You come out, you're walking down the street, it's at night, everybody's having a good time, and you're, just, you're walking by some restaurants or whatever, and two guys are out in the street fighting. From your perspective, it's two, two jerks in a fight. They're both wrong. You don't care who's right or wrong, it's just got to stop. But then if you find out that the framing is that this guy, you know, did whatever he did, he threw the first punch, whatever it is, all of a sudden the story changes about what you need to do, about who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And of course, the person who's genuinely in the wrong, as well as the person who's genuinely in the right, if there is such a thing, sometimes it is two jerks, but if there's somebody in the right and somebody in the wrong, both of them are going to argue that they're the one in the right. So it's complicated. You have to start to be able to reframe so that they don't own that framing. When they are provoking on purpose, you can guarantee they've already thought through the framing so that they look like they're in the right and anybody opposed to them is in the wrong. But this puts them in a vulnerable position, because if you can reframe it, if you can name the dynamic that they're doing, the, hey, you're provoking me. I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, right, little kid? What's the right response to that? Okay, I'm big brother, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. What should my little brother do? Well, he can't just let me do it, he's going to go crazy. That's my purpose. He can't smack me, because I'm just like, mom, he hit me. So now we know that mom is actually the authority that's being appealed to. So if mom understands, if he says very firmly, not to mom as a tattletale, because then I'll laugh at him as a big brother, he says very firmly to me, such that mom can hear, you are putting your finger in my face, stop it. And if you don't stop it, I will respond. Now the story is completely different. Now I'm the one who has to decide to stop and give in or overreact and make it worse and deal with the wrath of the authority that's being appealed to. You can turn it around. Here's what they say in Beautiful Trouble about this. They said, in a repressive environment or against a powerful target. So if you are the powerful target, you can turn everything upside down for them. In a repressive environment or against a powerful target, you need to be sure that your action actually puts them in a decision dilemma. Or you may just put yourself at serious risk. If a powerful target would face no negative repercussions for attacking you, then there is no decision dilemma keeping them from doing so. So when the watching audience understands that they're a provocateur, all of a sudden your set of options increases. 
You don't just react. Proud boys, stand by and stand down or whatever. You don't do that. You very clearly state, this is what's happening. This is how it's happening. I'm not going to stand for it. And if it continues, I'm well within my rights to say or do something about it. You are provoking me. That is unacceptable. This is a mid-level violence. You're not over the top, but you're past the line. Cut it out. And if the watching audience sees and hears and gets the context, they look bad. Absent a reaction to the provocations during Pride, the fetish on the streets and all of these things, the drag queens in front of the children, with no reaction, they look terrible. You give them a reaction and they look justified. Always remember that. All you have to actually do is make clear the context of what's going on and that they're provoking us and that they're trying to force things on people and they look bad all by themselves. Provocateurs always do. It's a matter of getting people to understand that they're a provocateur. The more power they get, the less able you are to do that. You have to understand that these provocations appear in strategic escalation. Starts out with a regular man dressed modestly as a woman in clown makeup, reading a storybook to a kid. Now the book is a little inappropriate. Now the clothing gets a little less. Next thing you know, sex toys and gyrations are involved or something. Kids putting money in, in underpants on a, on a man that's doing it. All, it's, they escalate strategically. Little by little by little by little. The boiling frog thing. Turn the temperature up a little. Turn it up a little more. Turn it up a little more. Eh, they didn't really lose it over this. They didn't really say no over that. A little more, a little more, a little more. The goal of that is in fact to <laughs> to get you to react eventually. They tell you this. In Beautiful Trouble, they say, since a target rarely gives in after one action, it is often necessary to strategically increase the pressure on them in a step-by-step -step escalation that draws upon a diverse mix of tactics. They're provoking you, and if you don't fall for the provocation, they'll escalate. This cuts both ways. Look how bad pride looks now. Because for a year we said, that's ugly, that's ugly, it's unacceptable, and nothing crazy happened as a reaction. And now, pride is dead. Yeah, it's happening a lot. There are tons of events. It has no goodwill left except in a very small remnant of very active left people. It has red-pilled so many people. Pride is a zombie at this point. Still active, but dead. And why? because they, they escalated and escalated and escalated until they actually, for sure, crossed an unambiguous line that almost everybody aware of it could see, and there was no reaction to justify it. That's powerful for us to keep in mind. That expose the operation, it defangs the anti-LGBTQ hate narrative that's trying to... Uh, actualize in society around it to make new policies and so on. I called this out famously enough, it went viral, uh, and Media Matters wrote an article before I even got off a of stage. I was at the Turning Point thing last December. I was sitting next to none other than Stephen K. Bannon, who they love, and uh, the left loves Bannon, let me tell you. So I'm sitting next to him, I got Charlie Kirk on the stage, Tim Pool's there, and I say that the point of Drag Queen Story Hour as it has unfolded between roughly June of last year and December, which had become quite gratuitous by that point in those six months. It started in 2015, if you wonder, but it didn't really go nuts until Pride last year started. 
I said the point of this is an escalating provocation to try to trigger a drag Floyd event. You know George Floyd. Well, we're going to have somebody lose it and go after a drag queen. And then we're going to have drag Floyd. And we're going to have a, at least some level repeat of things that happened in 2020 and the justification of anti-LGBTQ hate and all of this stuff. And I said that on stage in Media Matters, I know that I called him out because Media Matters had the article about it printed by the time I got off the stage. They squeal like a stuck pig when you hit the target. Didn't even get off stage. But that defanged their narrative arc that they were building out, that there's rising anti-LGBTQ hate, such that if somebody did lose their temper and do something like hit a drag queen in front of a kid or whatever, they would say, see, there's proof. The story became true. So you can actually understand their operation, say this is what the target would be, call it out in advance, and it loses all of its steam. And there's a reason for that. So you can formulate counter-operations by exposing what they're doing, taking people out of power, being prepared for the way they're going to squeal and act and react when you try to remove them from power, and saying, see, this is proof that they were a problem. Look how they're acting like a psychopath. You can actually shift liability back onto the perpetrators. It is the easiest thing that you can do is to expose these things, unless you actually have power lawyers, judges, public officials, or executives, or something like that, to do something about it. And those people, like I said, will be the last to know. All you actually have to do is start thinking operationally, naming operations as operations, naming their targets, and you're already being counter-operational. People don't like being manipulated and tricked. And so if you show them that they're being manipulated and tricked, they will turn on the provocateur. To do that, you have to understand how these narrative arcs work. Narrative arcs are the main vehicle of leftist dialectical political warfare. They tell a story. They weave a social mythology for what's happening, a contrived story about how society works. Oh, there's systemic racism, rising anti-LGBTQ hate, pandemic of the unvaccinated. These are stories about how society works, and then they look for pieces of proof to make it come true. So there's a communist from the 1920s and through the 50s who's Hungarian, George Lukács, who is not very well known or very well read by Westerners, not as well as people like Lenin or even Marcuse or Mao. And he had explained this whole theory of reification, how things become true within the mystified world. Oh, guess what? The iron law of woke projection never misses. What they do is they tell a social story they weave a mythology for how the world really works, a contrived story like systemic racism orders our affairs, or like uh, the capitalist class is ordering everything. And then they look for pieces of evidence to fit into that story to make it look true. Because communism always marries a truth to a lie. And so the truth will always be involved, but it will always be twisted up and mixed with lies that advance their narratives. That's what you have to start to understand and be able to tease apart. The result is pulling people for them into mystification or the synthetic dialectical space, propaganda space, or whatever. This is called something Mike referred to the other day, operational preparation of the environment, which is a military term. It is the extension of operational preparation of the battlefield. It's how they set up the so-called wizard circle or dialectical space. They tell a story for years about rising anti-LGBTQ hate. Nobody ever sees it. It's out there, though. We know it's out there. You've never seen it, but it's out there. Oh, and now there's rumbling on social media where it looks like it might be out there, and then somebody does something stupid. Of course it's everywhere and out there. 
Donald Trump runs for office. Oh my God, only a racist could vote for him. There's so much racism in America. The story became true on contrived lies that they told. That's how they operate. This is operational preparation of the environment. When you think operational, you realize they're operating in a military space. They are preparing you to react the way that they need you to react so they can get their way. They're preparing the story that everybody will believe when they point to a contrived piece of evidence later. And this is achieved through narrative warfare. Narratives are things that are meant to become true at a strategic moment or an opportune moment. They are not true. They become true in public consensus. They're a lie married to a truth. Remember that dialectical stuff is always about becoming the next thing. It is always becoming synthetic or fake and totalitarian. It always proceeds through a removal of discernment from the people who could see through it or help others see through it. It takes place, and this is the explanation for how it works, in a reflexive environment. You heard Mike talk about that earlier, and you've heard it many times if you follow him. The idea is to get everybody talking about it and then use the conversation itself and things that are said within the conversation as evidence that it's an issue. So you get everybody talking about it side to side and then you say, hey, look, it's real, and you move up the spiral. That's how they generate the energy to move up the spiral. Like with COVID, they said, nothing will ever be the same again. So they come along with this idea that they're going to introduce a total system change, a narrow window of opportunity to change our whole system. Everything must change because nothing will ever be the same again. And if you bought into that, well, everything must change, I guess. But it's true in a way. Post-COVID, things will never be the same. There were massive disruptions to institutional knowledge, to supply chains, to our society, to our ability to trust our corrupt government. Things are going to be different one way or another, but they want you to believe there's only one way for them to be different, and it's what's on their agenda. Oh, the future of the world is filled with the pandemics, the polycrisis. We have to have the global cooperation to save the world. Bullshit. We can go along our own way. We don't need your crap. We don't need, we have problem. Okay, you induce reaction. I got it. We don't need your solution. They tell a story and find evidences, fake false evidences that make it come true. Drag Floyd proved that there was systemic racism. I'm sorry, George Floyd proved that there was systemic racism in policing. There isn't, but it proved it. Lots of people believed it and everybody talked about it. And for months they had a clear runway to take off as many bombers as they wanted to to bomb our society. Drag Floyd would prove rising anti-LGBTQ hate. Look, they just laid another runway, and another bone just took off. So would an anti-homosexual Christian nationalism. They're going to run the ball for a long time if they get that narrative to come true. This is how they all work. They make a narrative come true. Eventually, people see through it and realize they were lied to, and there's an intervening amount of time in which they run the ball. Your goal, our goal, has to be to make that time zero. You see through it from the instant it happens. We're getting better at it. Feel encouraged. We are getting better at it. We have to get even better at it. We have to reduce trust in these people who are trying to run our lives so that we can see through it. The narrative we read last night that Christian nationalism is a domestic extremism 
phenomenon that was the true cause of January 6th, you can tell that's going to be operationalized to nullify Christianity. That's not hard to figure out. One outburst, one stupid event, one pastor saying things too vigorously even justifies the entire narrative and they get a runway. Eventually we take the runway apart, but they take off bomber planes every minute as long as it lasts. You can cut through these, no solutions, remember I have no solutions, by identifying the target. The goal is to get you to move side to side so they can move up. If you know where they're going up, you put a lid on it. But if you don't know where they're going, you can't do it. The goal is to get that horizontal arguing, that's dialectical rocket fuel, to fuel their rocket upward. You want to get on top of the rocket. And they, how do you do that? They tell you. They always tell you the targets. You actually just have to read their hysterical articles, which, if you're invested in the particular subject, tend to be funny. They tell you. So, rising anti-LGBTQ hate. I read a bunch of these articles. Turns out I'm named in a bunch of these articles, so I read lots of them. This is a huge narrative. You know who else is named in almost every article about rising anti-LGBTQ hate? Elon Musk. You know how this is all happening? Why, why am I named in these articles that I found? Well, Elon Musk let James Lindsay and other anti-LGBTQ figures back onto Twitter. Elon Musk's Twitter is allowing anti-LGBTQ hate to rise in our country. Oh, okay, so you want to control social media. Stop the rocket from taking off. No, you don't get to control our speech. You don't get to use this narrative and wait till something happens to control our speech. We see what you're doing. And when other people see what they're doing, the reflexive part where everybody's like, oh my gosh, doesn't happen, and their runway is too short to take planes off. You have to stop the point where everybody believes it. I read a statistic once, I don't know if it's true, that roughly 87% of a target population will believe a propaganda campaign for some period of time. Let's take that as a given. Almost everybody will fall for it. Oh, something's happening in Ukraine. Everybody's, oh no, Ukraine. Ukraine flags in every bio. And then two weeks later, not so many Ukraine flags in the bio. Two weeks later, oh, you're one of the people with the Ukraine flag in your bio. Okay, you're stupid, I got you. You're an operative. Your opinion is, is, is worthless. So it takes a few weeks. You want that time to be as small as possible. You want that time to be as small as possible. It doesn't matter what the truth about the Ukraine conflict is, by the way. The goal is not to fall into the, oh my God, we have to do something right now environment that they generate with the hysterics. And if you can say, this is what they're pointing toward, like a giant money laundering scheme in that case, or controlling social media, or controlling Christians, or removing influencers from social media who are anti-LGBT hate figures, then you can name what their attack is intended to accomplish and block them from getting to the goal because the, we, the way they get there is to get everybody to believe that'll solve the problem. All the misinformation and disinformation will go away if we just get Alex Jones off social media. Cancel him, yay! 87% of the population, yay! You see how it works? If you name the target, it takes away their ability to get there. It's like putting a, a lineman in the way of their running back if you don't want to play football. Every story they write about a particular topic with a narrative arc will mention the real targets. So you have to start reading them, figure out what they're aiming at, and then expose it because it breaks the reflexive potential of the story and they can't run the ball or take off the planes. Now I get to preach. I'm going to tell you maybe the most important thing in the world for fighting dialectical political warfare. Now you've heard people all day today, all day yesterday, all day for years now, if you've been paying any attention, to tell 
the truth. Speak the truth, right? Not enough. Not enough. Not even close to enough. You have to love the truth. You have to fear the truth. And you have to hate deception. It is way too much for a human being to claim to know the truth, much less to speak it. That's for God. All we can do is love the truth with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And tell it to the best of our ability at every point and do not lie. And meanwhile, hate those who would deceive you and others and call them out. Maybe don't hate them. Hate the deception. Loving the truth is way more than telling it. Imagine that you actually fell in love with somebody and you're 17 again and you're, oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, let me tell you about this girl I just met. She's so pretty. You're going to go tell everybody. You tell everybody all the time, oh, I love, I love. Imagine you became a vegan. I love my new diet. You never shut up about it. Loving the truth means treating it like you love it. So you're going to talk about it. You're going to defend it. You're going to protect it. You're going to cherish it. You're going to honor it. You're going to fear it. And you should fear the truth. You better fear the truth. That's the opposite of what you usually hear, but it's fear in the biblical sense. Because lying to yourself means that the truth could kill you. If you lie to yourself and think that you can fly off of a building, maybe you're spun up on something, the truth might kill you. If you lie to yourself and tell you that you can handle your car at 150 down the highway, the truth might kill you. You need to fear the truth in that sense. Reality is the thing that you run into when your beliefs are false. So you better fear the truth. Because reality always bats last. You can lie to yourself and others for a while and it will catch up to you. So you have to state the truth as well as you can, but you have to love the truth first. You should be prudent with your speech. You must not lie. That's not the same thing as telling the truth. Every time you lie, I said it a minute ago, to fit in or to escape struggle is selling part of your soul to the people you're trying to fit in with and whatever guides them. You must hate deception and expose it wherever and whenever possible. You must hate the deceiver. To get a little more practical, you don't need to remember all of these examples, things you can do. These are mostly principle-based examples, but you get some ideas. I have this podcast I did a long time ago called Steal the Mott and Bomb the Bailey. You heard a little bit about the Mott and Bailey strategy. That's where a word means more than one thing or an act, uh, something like Christian nationalism. So you get this really benign thing like I'm a patriot and I love my country and I'm a Christian. So yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist and would love to see a renewal of faith in this country with Christian principles underlying it culturally. Christian nationalism. And then you have this Christian prince restriding the land and whatever else. Nobody really wants a Christian prince except for a few yahoos. That's the indefensible thing. That's what's called the Bailey in this structure. Lots of people want a cultural renewal and a call back to faith. I think it'd be a good thing. That's the Mott. The Mott is a castle that's very defensible. 
highly defensible place to retreat when you're called out, incredible radical activism when nobody's looking. That's the idea. This is called strategic equivocation. This is bread and butter dialectical warfare. You bounce back and forth between two positions so nobody quite knows what you mean about it. So what do you do when you encounter it? I said, you steal the Mott and bomb the Bailey. First thing you do is you name the dynamic. Luckily, Mott and Bailey is getting to be a known concept, so you can call it that. You can say you're equivocating. That's a big word. You're, you're holding two positions at once. That When we're looking, you know, you say one thing, and when we're not looking, you say something else. You can make it simple. But then you have to steal away the Mott. You have to be able to explain both positions. You have to explain, yeah, I know what you're trying to do. I know what you say you're doing. And this is why that's actually not that great of a thing. Yeah, I agree. A cultural renewal, great. I agree with you. I agree with you. Parents should uh, do the best for their kids. But here's what you want to do. And then you bomb the Bailey. Puberty blockers, not so good for kids. Christian prince that removes our constitutional freedoms, not so good. So you steal the mot, take away the thing that they hide behind and say, no, you're not even doing that right. But I get you and I agree with you. So you steal their ability to hide there. And here's the thing you're actually doing in your activism. And you expose that and criticize that. You always want to expose your activist agenda that they're hiding behind and the way that they're bouncing back and forth. Another principle that helps with this is show, don't tell. If I stand here and tell you things, they're not believable. It's married truth and lies. It is not believable. But if I show you this is literally what they wrote, this is literally what they said, this is exactly what they're doing, here's where the money went, whatever it is, you show, don't tell, it works. Woke stuff is virtually unbelievable even when you're looking straight at it. But I want you to think about one character that goes by libs of TikTok and think of how many things that you saw that you weren't told about and how it changed your mind about what's happening in this country. Show, don't tell is a very powerful thing. I gave up a while back in my podcast, basically just became me reading papers because I was like, read Repressive Tolerance, everybody. Read, nobody read it. I think like five people read it. So I said, you know what, I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to read Repressive Tolerance to you. Now like 300,000 people heard me read it. Show, don't tell. Everywhere you can expose and explain their linguistic manipulations. When they say our democracy, you say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? Get them to try to explain what they mean by democracy. You'll find that a lot of times they can't. Oh, yeah, trans children. What's a trans child? You'll find that they frequently can't even explain their own words. They don't know what it means. But you can explain them if you've bothered to learn. Our democracy. What is a democracy? Well, Lenin said that there's bourgeois democracy and then there's proletarian democracy. So there's two types. You can assume our democracy, when the Democrats are saying it, might be the one that serves their needs. Remember what Mao said, democratic centralism, but it's only democratic when you're inside the party and it's dictatorship for everybody else? Good to point those kinds of things out. Democracy means you're on our program. Democracy is only true for communists when you have communism first, because otherwise everybody's not equal, so everybody doesn't get an equal vote. See, now I explain this to you and you're like, oh. Then you think of all the times you've heard it from a politician and you're like, oh no. But that breaks the spell. Learning to speak or explain woke speak is a very valuable skill. Not everybody can do it. I mean, anybody I think probably can. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's not fun to learn to speak Orwellian doublespeak and to decode it for other people. But if you have the talent, I encourage you to learn to do it. Anywhere you can, another technique is to hold people to their extremism. 
They want to sterilize kids? Ask them why they want to sterilize kids. They want to show, oh, you're just trying to ban books. So that's contrived framing. Okay, why do you want this book to be in public libraries and you show them a book that has pornographic content or sexual content or something in a library for children? Why do you want this there? Show, don't tell. Here it is. Look at it. Do you want this there? Is this what you're committing to? Make them defense the in, defend the indefensible. They will. They can't go backwards, so they will. It will progress from, okay, groomer, to here's why we're grooming and it's a good thing. Here's why we need more grooming. That actually happened with okay, groomer. At first, they're like, grooming, that's bad. Don't say that, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, there are articles. Teachers actually do groom kids. And then they tried to write this long, contrived paragraph about how it means something slightly differently, but it's exactly what we mean. They indoctrinate. Yeah, it's a job, teacher's job to indoctrinate. They'll say that. They'll, you can get them to say it. Make them defend the things that they are actually doing. It's actually not hard. Expose it and hold them to it. Here's the book with the porn in it. Is this what you want in the library? Yes, because. Oh, you've already won. Yes, because you've already won. Go read it at a school board meeting. Go read it on television. If you get invited to speak or whatever somewhere, read it. Guess what will happen to you? They will cut the camera. You've proved your point. They will, I think, I'm not positive, I think Ron DeSantis may have been the one, or somebody did this, and they turned the camera off. They're like, that's off FCC code. <laughs> Thank you. Mic drop. You need to understand with this diagram that the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. That's actually a motto they use. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. You have to think vertically. The issue that they are raising in front of you, whatever the current thing is, is a pretext to take power. All you have to do is... First start there, then figure out how that might work, and then explain it, and you take away their ability to move in the direction they want to do. They are giving you contrived issues. Their issues are throwaway. They're marrying truth to a lie anyway. If they understand this about how they operate and you don't, they have a huge advantage. So I mentioned the bombers taken off a minute ago on the runways we let them have. I want you to think about this. This is a metaphor from Steve Coughlin, who you guys should all look up. Steve Coughlin is a uh, military counterterrorism guy who has done more about political warfare to bring it to the public than anybody uh, so far. And he's got a, a place called Unconstrained Analytics, and you should see how he thinks. The goal for them, he says, think about a plane flying by and dropping a bomb. And he, uh, he, the plane goes by. At some point back here, it drops the bomb, and it goes on an arc, and it lands somewhere. And the plane's flying by at roughly the same speed, and so whatever, right? The bomb goes off here, but it was launched back here. So you've already missed the point by the time you're dealing with the explosion. So their goal is to make you think that the bomb that went off, the argument you have to have today, everybody, oh my gosh, is the problem, but you missed the plane. The bombs are an issue, they are the issue, but the issue is not the issue, the issue is revolution. The plane is the revolution. The revolution is still advancing on by while you're dealing in the blast zone. The plane is moving through these narrative arcs, and by the time one bomb blows up, they're already dropping the next bomb. 
Every time they bring a narrative true, they reify a narrative, that's a bomb going off. And now everybody has to argue about it. And everybody on social media is talking about it. And it's very difficult to be the person to cut through and say, hey, wait a minute. The thing that's happening at the Capitol is not what you think it is, which I tweeted on January 6th, 2021, and got in a lot of trouble for. We need to shoot down the plane. Fake news shot down a plane. These are the kinds of things that we have to bring in. Okay, groomer shot down a plane. Drag Floyd might have shot down a plane. They're generating horizontal energy for vertical movement. That's the dialectic. So we have to think vertically and get on top of them. Don't argue with the issue. Don't get tangled up in the thing. If there's a thing about climate change and say it's about wet bulb temperatures, don't argue about if 94 wet bulb is hot. That's what they want you to do. Say, no, you can't have power to control the temperature. We're not going to give you money to control the weather. No, you don't get to sacrifice 200,000 cows to Gaia to control the weather. That's shooting down the plane. Don't argue with the issue. Ask yourself why they want you arguing about the issue. Maybe it's a distraction. Maybe it has a purpose. Maybe it's rocket fuel. Ask what they can do with this issue to gain power. Try to figure it out. Then call it out. Try to figure out how they might make the narrative come true. Well, an act of violence would make anti-LGBTQ hate narratives come true. So that's what they probably want. If you can point out the vertical target of their activism, it ruins their effectiveness. You have to keep remembering that dialectical political warfare operators are manipulators. They are manipulating you into seeing the wrong thing. They're manipulating you into wasting your time. They're manipulating you into doing reactions that they can use to their advantage to advance their causes. Name manipulations. Don't argue with manipulations. Imagine you are actually arguing with a manipulator. You're wasting your time at the very best. You're getting sucked into a web of lies at the worst. They trick you actually at the worst. Instead, name the dynamic. Tell, step back and say, what's happening here? Explain what's happening here, especially to other people who might be witnessing it. Have you guys ever heard of DARVO? It's a fun word. A lot of people know some acronyms like FUBAR, which is my favorite one. I won't say what it means. But DARVO, it means deny, attack, reverse the roles of victim and offender. This is what happens when they squeal like a stuck pig. You say, you're putting porn in front of kids. They say, we're not putting porn in front of kids. And then they attack. You're banning books. And then they reverse the roles of victim and offender. We're the victims here. You have anti-LGBT intentions. You're offending us. This is clinical psychopath behavior. I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly what it is. This is how a narcissistic abuser responds when their narcissistic abuse gets called out. You're going to run into it a lot. Start telling people about DARVO. Very powerful tool. They're doing a DARVO. They're doing a DARVO. Everybody who knows what a DARVO is is going to be able to deal with seeing it called out, and they're going to be on your side. If they don't know what a DARVO is, they can be educated about a DARVO. Just like the people who knew what a FUBAR is laughed. Understand decision dilemmas. Name that manipulation. You're putting me into a lose-lose situation that's fake and contrived. I'm not playing by your terms. Stop it. You're provoking us. Stop it. Point out that they're building a narrative arc. They're talking about anti-LGBTQ hate that nobody can see in reality because later they're going to whip it up and then they're going to say, hey, look, it's real and it's been real all along. Name the narrative arc. 
talk about strategic escalations to provoke reactions. Talk about how, look, it was pretty, it was, drag queens are never great, but it was mild, and now it's extreme. Look how it grew as we didn't react, we didn't respond the way they wanted to. Now it's crazy. And it's going to keep getting crazier until they get a reaction or until it loses the ability to provoke a reaction entirely, which is, I think, where we basically put them. Unless Christian nationalism rushes in like Leroy Jenkins and screws this up for everybody. Explain the Mott and Bailey. They're equivocating. Explain that they're misusing words. You must act but not react after you name the dynamic. You have to get off the couch. You have to do something useful within your set of skills We're in a church, so I'll say you have to look to your gifts of the Spirit, think about them, pray about them, talk to people, uh, and counsel about them. Find out what you're good at and do it. It might be running errands. It might be support staff. It might be reading all of the stuff and presenting it to people. It might be uh, taking time to spend time with the neighborhood kids. It might be getting in a mentorship role. There's a lot of things. Maybe you aren't good at reading woke, but you're good at reading policy so you can hold your lawmakers accountable. Or you can learn to be. Maybe you're not good at reading either one of those things, but you're good at reading the Declaration of Independence and teaching what the, teaching kids what it says. Maybe you're good at teaching kids about the horrors of communism, like Lily and like she. Ask yourself what you can do. Take the question seriously. Look for your gifts, and then you are commanded in your gospel to multiply them. That's the parable of the talents. It is not enough to take the talents you've been given dig a hole, hide them, and give them back at the time. That's shameful. You get kicked out. You need to double your talents. You need to build upon them. And when you do that, you do it again. And you grow, and you make more and more and more impact. Christians have a moral obligation to multiply their talents. Every wise person does too. Always try to grow what you have Don't just hold on to it. You also have to be more realistic if you get discouraged easily. You have to think smaller. We hear these big things. World Economic Forum, United Nations. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? How can I do anything against the United Nations? Think smaller. What can you do locally? You're going to get overwhelmed if you wonder about what to do about the big things. But if they can't implement locally, it doesn't get implemented at the end of the day, except by force, which will delegitimize them further and create more of a resistance. So act locally. Get involved locally. Join a local chapter of something. If there isn't one, start one. Get involved with kids. Try to learn something useful to any of this. American civics and history. History of of communism and its atrocities. Useful life skills. Kids don't have them. Kids don't have them. Volunteer for something. Do support stuff. If you don't know what to do, get involved somewhere. And what you're going to start to figure out is things that you can do Within that, when you're sitting on the couch, you'll never figure out what to do. But think locally. Act locally. But reach for the highest part of the chain that you're sure you can reach. But don't reach higher. Because then you'll just stress yourself out. If the biggest thing that you can do is something to do with the school board locally, that's the biggest thing you can do. If the biggest thing you can do is become president of the United States and kick the United Nations out, then you should do that too. Reach for the highest thing on the chain that you can reach but not higher. And then let that grow because that's the parable of the talents. My good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a few things, I'll make you master over many. That's how this works. Always try to think of how they want you to react and don't give them the reaction. Don't give them the satisfaction. Instead, point out what they're trying to get you to do 
and why they're probably trying to get to do, you to do it and what they're going to do with it when you do, like I did yesterday for Christian nationalism by reading the J6 stuff, then expect to get called a conspiracy theorist. And if you get good at it, expect to end up on the Southern Poverty Law Center website. That probably means you're doing something right, like when they wrote that article about my Drag Floyd comment while I was still on stage. Ideally, you want to keep doing this until they have two options themselves. You've backed them into the ultimate decision dilemma. Either quit or use force. Stand down or use force. Force them to use force if you have to. Keep saying no until they make you because then they delegitimize themselves. It's not necessarily going to be comfortable. Think about the civil rights leaders who went and did sit-ins. They went to a lunch counter. They sat down. They said, we're not going to leave until you serve us. We'll leave as soon as you serve us. They didn't say we're going to sit here until we get whatever we want in the whole world and we're going to throw down and mess up your whole restaurant. All we're asking for is for you to serve us. When you serve us, we'll leave. And they didn't serve them and they sat there and all kinds of things happened and guess what? They had the moral authority because other people were the ones who used force first. When they force people, they do not have the right to do that in a free society. When they force people, they delegitimize themselves. When they came out with the idea of vaccine passports, they delegitimize themselves. That eventually broke that program, and it'll eventually break them on each thing they try to force. It's only when they can trick us into agreeing to giving up our rights that they don't delegitimize themselves, and they can get away with it. They constantly use tricks and disguises. Expose the tricks, expose the disguises, keep saying no, make them bring force, and you end up in the winning position. You are always trying to diminish trust in them and their fake solutions. If they force people, they lose support, and this matters a lot, as the vaccine passports and vaccine mandates have taught us. We pushed back big things there. You can force them to use force simply enough just by not going along with the programs that they put in front of you, not accepting the incentives. You might get hurt in the process. Like I said, start thinking of yourself as a potential plaintiff. Be prepared to sue. Know how to do what they do, make rocket fuel. If they come to you and cause a problem for you, learn how to turn that around and turn it to your advantage. Don't get discouraged when they hit back or your thing doesn't work. Learn from it and step back into the ring. Use whatever they gave you to take the next step. You always want to be sand in the gears. You want them moving more slowly at all times. If you can't stop them, you want to do things to slow them down. Don't help them enthusiastically, in other words. It delays the inevitable, if it is inevitable. If they're going to win, make it take as long as possible and cost as much as it can. You're going to buy a lot of time. And in that time, there's going to be growth, activism, learning, activation of people like us, more participants coming to the story, a harder job for them. But also, the big, ugly, heavy stories come out. You see the things coming out about the president and his family, you think, oh, nothing happens. They won't prosecute it. I'm going to give up. Don't quit. The truth comes out, and every time it comes out, it makes it heavier for them, harder for them to maintain their pretense to legitimacy. The truth is always working its way out, even if it doesn't make it all the way. But some stuff does. We see it week by week. That makes everything they do harder, it delegitimizes them, and it lowers trust, which is a key topic, or a key, a key strategy for us. We have to stop falling for and helping struggle sessions. That is their primary weapon. 
until they get social credit and digital currency. You have to stop helping struggle sessions. Struggle sessions, like I said before, are a unique form of psychological and social torture meant to get confessions to false or contrived crimes. The goal is to get you to recognize and accept the terms of the bogus regime. You are pressured in an increasing escalation of pressure to want to confess to relieve that pressure put on you. That pressure won't come just from your enemies, but will eventually come to your friends. They'll say you're a problem, so your whole church needs to turn on you to get the problem to go away, so they'll bring problems to your church. Your kid's school is a problem, whatever. They're going to turn the whole community, or as much of it as they can get, against you. And you're going to want to confess to get that pressure off of you and your friends. But the pressure isn't going to go away because struggle sessions aren't there to get you to say you're sorry. They're there to thought reform you. They are there to brainwash you. They are there to nullify you, to steal your moral standing in your community so that people won't take you seriously because you cracked. The goal is to always to get you to sell a part of your soul in exchange for false relief. Because it's false because right after you confess, they're going to tell you your confession wasn't sincere enough and you need to do better. You need to learn to recognize your crimes from the perspective of the new basis, the people's standpoint, the inclusive standpoint, sustainability, global citizenship. This is brainwashing. Remember what Mike said about the four industrial revolutions. The fourth industrial revolution is different because it changes you. That's brainwashing. Your friends are going to catch like it's a contagious cold. They're going to catch, as my friend, my marine friend said, secondhand shit from the struggle session, and they're going to want the pressure to go away, and they're going to pressure you to be reasonable, because they want the pressure off of them, and it's betrayal, and it hurts, and it's hard. It's easily the worst part is when your friends start coming to you and siding with your enemies and not standing by you. This is psychologically overwhelming, almost unendurable. You feel like everyone you respect knows that you're not worthy of respect any longer. Of course, that's the inverse of what's true. When you give in, that's exactly where you end up. It's a, it's a magic spell being cast upon you. In reality, that's not the case. Almost nobody even knows it's happening. That's why they're not coming to your defense. They almost never know what's happening, especially if it's on social media. They won't say anything if it's at work because it's a condition of their job. So what do you do? Don't confess, not even tacitly. Do not apologize because that's a tacit confession. It won't be seen as sincere anyway. Even if you are in the wrong, it doesn't matter. The point is to gain power over you so you'll change yourself. Don't confess. Don't apologize on their terms, on their timing. Even if you were wrong, wait. Wait till the whole thing simmers down, then go individually to the people who are actually harmed and offer an apology quietly. And if that's not good enough, you know it was fake. You know it was manipulation. Do nothing in the moment of demand. The point is to gain power over you so you will change yourself into what they want you to be. That's totalitarian. If you are somebody else, do not endorse the terms of the struggle session for yourself or others. Even if somebody made a mistake, for example, yeah, that was ugly. They probably shouldn't have done that. All of this is happening. The struggle session is happening in extremely bad faith. Breaking the struggle session is far more important. Do not justify the terms. Yeah, well, quoting Hitler without adding context was actually kind of awkward, and you should just be the bigger person and own up so we can do better in the future. Stop it. 
Stand with that person. Have the conversation privately later. Don't demand they do a single thing for their enemies in the moment. Stop it. If you are doing that, if you find yourself doing that, stop it. Stand with the people being put through struggle sessions. Expose and help them expose what's going on. Help them understand what's going on to them. They may not know. Expose the distortions. Tell them to get away from it. Put the phone down. Take some time. Don't engage with it. And you yourself don't participate. Offer to support them instead. Offer to help expose it instead. Do not go to them and ask for an explanation privately. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that thing that they're yelling at you about that you did wrong, and I'm your buddy, so just what, what's the real story about that? Don't do that to people. It sucks. Ask later. They'll probably just tell you later when they're ready, when it's not so hot. Just stand with them. After the struggle session ends in a few days or a week or whatever, you can start to talk about it when the psychological torture is not their experience of life because betrayal still feels like betrayal. And the social circumstances in a struggle session are very traitorous. Even you want me to explain myself? Even you don't trust that I had good intentions, that I didn't mean it the way they say? Even you believe the leftist contrived narrative that's unfair and mischaracterized? Even you Mom, just kidding, my mom does not do that to me. A lot of people's moms and dads do that to them. Get over your curiosity. It doesn't matter what happened, you can find out later. Stop the struggle session. If you're the one involved, offer a minimal or no explanation. You owe nobody anything. These people are operating in extremely bad faith to harm and manipulate you. You don't owe them a single thing. Then leave it. If you give any kind of explanation... Give the smallest thing you can, do it once, and leave it alone. It doesn't matter how many times you explain it on social media. You're going to have to explain it again a thousand times, and it breaks your mind. Engage as little as possible. Log off. Go touch grass. The longer you engage, the more you lose. They always turn nasty. They always turn dirty. You think, oh, I'm winning this one. And then something happens. Two days later, it's nasty. You feel awful. You're depressed. They beat you. Step away from it. It's hard. You think you're being humiliated. Chances are most people have no idea it's happening. Step away from it. Then use the struggle session as a teaching moment for others. This is a struggle session. This is how it worked. This is how they work. This is what they do. This is what you should do about it and do that over and over and over again. We have to take away the power of struggle sessions from them. They are so evil and so unjust and so brutal. Name the dynamic instead of explaining yourself because that's losing. Here's a big one. This is the Daniel Penny rule. Always do the right thing, especially when it's costly. Do you love the truth? You better stand up for it when it costs you something, too. Always do the right thing, even especially when it's costly. So what was Daniel Penny? Why do we call it that? They don't, Daniel Penny was the guy on the New York subway where this lunatic is threatening the whole car, and he puts the guy in a chokehold to restrain him, and unfortunately the guy dies later. So they arrest him. And the point is, everybody on social media talked about it. They bought right into the reflex of BS. Oh, don't defend yourself anymore on the subway. Look what will happen to you. You'll get arrested. Don't swear again, James. BS. Always do the right thing, especially when it's costly. Stand up when you see something bad happening in your community, even if you're going to get in trouble for it. Do the right thing. Always do the right thing. Do not let your community get degraded by that fear. 
Defend the innocent. Speak the truth to the best of your ability. Do not compromise with manipulators. Stand with your friends when they're being attacked with dialectical methods. Don't validate struggle sessions or their terms. Defend the people being put through them. These are things you must always do, especially when it's costly. You think you've got to worry about your job? That means it's important to speak up now. Maybe important to file a lawsuit. Think they might mess with your kids? You don't think that that's a reason to stand up and do something? They might, oh, I would say something, but they'll mess with my kids. Are you kidding me? That's exactly when you're like, I'm jerking my kid out of that school today. They're not going to mess with my kids. I'm going to protect my kids. Protect the innocent. The things you're afraid of, you don't have to be afraid of, but you are going to have to take on a little more work. You might get treated unjustly like Daniel Penny. Okay, do the right thing. It's better than the alternative. Losing our society, everybody being in that situation all the time, but instead he has become a hero to many. He's opened many people's eyes even without trying. Your story will inspire a whole lot more if you do the right thing under bad circumstances and take the fake lumps they give you. I mean, they're real lumps when they hit you, but it's contrived. It exposes the contrived nature of the wizard circle. This is big for churches and families. Be a landing pad. Woke is a cult. Reaction is a cult. The people who are really involved are in deep. Deprogramming them is hard. Your family will be the hardest people to deprogram. You expect, oh, I'm their mom. They're going to listen to me. No, they're not. They're your daughter. They expect you're going to listen to them. It's much more emotional and contentious the closer the relationship. It's very hard. So what do you have to do? Churches fit in this too. You need to be a landing pad. You probably are not going to shake many people too often out of being woke, especially not in the moment. It's not easy. It's cult deprogramming. You can, on the other hand, make sure that they know where you stand and that you are there for them anytime they shake loose. Look, I know you're hurting if you're trans or whatever. Our church door is always open. We're not going to come out and beat you with the Bible. We're not going to carry on. We're not going to preach at you. But if you need somebody to talk to and you're looking for answers, you want to deal with this pain, there's always an open door. Be a landing pad. Same thing in a family. Look, I get it. I don't agree with you about your politics. They've gotten out of control. I hope we can maintain a relationship to the best of our ability despite the difference. You're always welcome here. We can always talk. You want to be the person who they will send the thing that they say, this doesn't make sense to me, can you explain it? And you want to have the explanation ready and say, yeah, it's like this other thing. When you start to see that you were lied to, you start to red pill. You start to break free of the cult. You start to get out of the wizard circle. What got me out of being Trump derangement syndrome was specifically seeing that the very fine people hoax was a hoax. I said, why did they lie about that? So I started listening to other things Trump said. And I was like, this guy makes actually a lot of sense. He talks funny, but actually it's hilarious. Oh my gosh, I'm laughing. Next thing you know, I'm voting for him and I'm on TV in three countries explaining myself. <laughs> it was that they lied about him. The first one that actually got me with Trump was I said, why won't the media turn the temperature down on America? They only escalate. So I figured the fake news thing might be kind of real. They never try to make it better. They only try to make it worse. So I have this moment. If I have nobody to turn to and say that to that I feel like I can trust, and in the cult, who could I tell? If I go to somebody else who's afraid of Trump, I can't tell them, no, he's evil. He's a dictator. He really said that stuff. It's there. But if I have a landing pad where I can go and say, hey, I don't understand what I'm seeing here. Can you help me? And you can sit and talk to me and hear me out 
and say, well, there's this example too. You think about that without too much pressure. This becomes a gigantic resource. You want to be that. It's not just about being moral support. You become a resource to these people. You help them out of the wizard circle to pull them back to reality. And it's so important with family that you keep this in mind. Remember that Maoism was designed to tear apart families. One of the reasons is so this wouldn't happen. So I come now to the most important of all my principles. Do not quit. I know I already said it. First and last. We may not win if we don't quit, but we cannot win if we do quit. They want us to quit more than anything else. Don't give it to them. Do not quit. So to summarize everything, I've talked here about dialectical political warfare in three talks. The first of these was about Mao being the most, most successful example of a dialectical political warfare tactician in history. We saw, by comparison, Hitler, and we learned that it works, but for evil, always evil. We saw that we are going through a Western or American cultural revolution on woke terms. We realized we cannot sit by, and we have to stop it if that's possible. We must win. In the second talk, I expanded to talk about the action-reaction dynamic. Dialectical political warfare depends on triggering us and using the reaction we give them. Christian nationalism is an obvious trap of that kind, whatever its intentions. The goal, if that trap is sprung, will be to undermine all independent religious belief and thought. The action-reaction dynamic is just one of the evil tactics of dialectical political warfare. And in this talk, I've summarized that it can be understood. There are many things. We're just cracking into green space, as it said, to understand and confront and counter it. There are things we can do. We can learn the rules of their operating system and use it against, not use their principles, use our understanding against them to stop them from being able to make the moves that they want to. It's like going into the matrix and realizing that in dialectical spaces like the matrix, that the rules are a little bit different, but if you get good at them, you can stop even the super powerful agent smiths that use it against you with superpowers. Our overarching message then is that we are being put through dialectical political warfare to end liberty and justice for all. Their goal is to transform everything, including you. We must act, which means doing the right thing, which means knowing the right things to do, which means knowing also the mistakes that we should avoid. We must not react the way they want us to react. Political warfare, to summarize that again, is getting your opponent to react the way you need for your hostile intent. So they want to break us. That's the most important thing to keep in mind. They want you to just accept this, say, well, that's just what they're doing. We have to go along and adapt. Or they want you to quit, to step out of the fray. We must win. We must not quit. Thank you.